We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. So just so we know, the context for the text this morning, the context for the text, the context for the text, of course, is that we are in the final two chapters of the book of Leviticus, the, the third of the five books of Moshe, of Torah. The third of the five books of Moshe is dealing almost exclusively with elements of the temple or the Mishkan, which was the portable temple, either the portable temple or the eventual temple in Jerusalem, in Israel. It is called Torah Kohanim, the Torah of the priests. It's a priestly book. It's kind of all kinds of checklists. Before Atul Gawande's checklist, there was Leviticus. Leviticus, the ultimate how-to manual, how to worship, how to be with God. And we're coming in for landing the last two chapters of this center piece of the five books, right? The five books of Moses. This is the chiastic structure. This is the center of the five books. So it radiates in both directions. It is important. It's valuable. And so the end of the mo- of maybe the most important of the five books of Moshe in terms of its impact on the daily life of Jews, Jews who lived in ancient Israel, right? For us, it's less relevant because we don't live in a temple period. But if you were living in the temple time, this was a kind of how-to manual to be Jewish and to do Jewish. So this essential, central book has an ending, and the ending of any poem or book or anything is vital. So it's going to tell us something about what's important to the author. So what's important to the author in chapter 26 is letting us know that if we don't keep the covenant, it won't be good for us. Chapter 26 is full of the quid pro quo God, that theology of if you do what I'm asking you to do, then it'll be great. You'll have ice cream and candies, and I'll be a good God to you, and you'll be a good people. But if you don't, klalot, curses. Chapter 26 of Leviticus, 26 Leviticus, not good. At the end of it, curses and horrible things, cannibalism, if you don't do it. I mean, if you're reading this book to people, this is the ultimate uh, fear-based motivation, right? Like, really horrible. And then chapter 27, which we're about to embark upon, is the ultimate chapter. So that's the penultimate, and this is the ultimate chapter. And how does the book of Leviticus end? First with blessings and curses, and then nedarim, arachin. This last chapter is known in the language of the rabbis as erechin or arachin, which has to do with erech. What is erech in Hebrew? Anyone know erech? Be'erech means value. This is the evaluation chapter. It begins by telling people that there was an institution in the land of Israel, in, in, amongst the Israelites, amongst the, the ancient Israelites, where they would voluntarily vow various things to the temple. I'm giving my Rolls Royce to the temple or to the shul. I want to dedicate a piece of property 
to the temple precinct. I want to pay. I volunteer. I'm so, something good. God did something good in my life, and it makes me want to give something to the temple. So I'm going to give this my favorite ten cows. Just imagine. I mean, for us, it's just basically where you say you're going to give a certain object of value that might be used by the priest. The priest didn't have their own land, and they didn't have right, so they might use it. It's kind of a dedication. We don't. It's not dissimilar to what happens for a non-for-profit institution, right? You give things in kind. They're, the non-for-profit doesn't you know, have that much money, so here's a couch. My couch is in the other room over here. I dedicated it to the temple. But what happens if you decide after you've made a vow that you're gonna give your Rolls Royce? You say, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> you know, I just gave my Tesla away, but stocks are going through the roof. What am I gonna do? I promised this object. Is there any way for me to transmute the value of the object that I have dedicated and put it on my credit card? What's the value of the thing that I dedicated? I'm going to give its value, but I don't know what the value is. So the priests are the ones who were the evaluators. They were the ones that came and said, you know, let me tell you the value of that. You wanted to give us cow. And there was a, a levied tax. If you wanted to change from the object you were going to give they had to, you know, the credit cards, there's a percentage. They have to cover that percentage. So the priest would add a punishment. They would add an amount that was an amount that would feel significant enough to make the person think twice about how they would use their vow power, their vow pow in the future. Because you've got vow pow. The fundamental assertion of the Torah in this moment is that the central core text of our tradition, which deals with how to be Jewish, is rooted in knowing that your words matter. That once something comes out of your mouth, you can't take it back. That's like the essence of the Torah is begins with God speaking a world into existence. God doesn't create the world with a finger or with a divine fiat. God doesn't create from the waters and bring up... A, I mean, he does, but... But it's with divine utterance. And so from the very moment of chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, the human being is being reminded over and over again that what you say, anything that comes out of your mouth has to be really, really, really special. But the Torah also says this. This is from the Kliyakar, the great uh, Shlomo Ephraim, of, Lun, of Lunchitz, who said that the reason why the whole Parsha, the whole subject of this evaluation of vows that want to be changed comes after the klalot, after the curses, is to tell you this. That somebody in a moment of tzara, in a moment of pain, you say, ah, I'm going to give this away. Please God, save my mother, save my father, take care of me. He says to teach us that if often what is the cause for us to feel that desire to give is a sense of narrowness, a sense of something happening in our life. What motivates us often to volunteer or to give voluntarily to the holy is that we've suffered a little bit and we understand the power of the institution that we're giving to has in our lives. 
we recognize that when we were in a place of cloud, in a place of curse, that it was there for us. It held us. And so we want and we are moved then to give. So this is a powerful moment in the Torah. But another powerful moment is the flexibility the Torah offers you in how you might redeem your promise. Right? If we were to live in a world or in a Torah that says that no matter what you promised, there's no way out. That's not a world that the Torah would like to imagine. That there are circumstances, there are exigencies, there are changes in direction. And the Torah offers the possibility that one might in one moment want to give one thing and then in another moment decide that they'd like to serve in a different way. And the Torah gives you an out. So here we have these verses. Take a look on page 753. And God spoke to Moses, saying, If a person, when anyone makes a neder, a, a, a vow to God, So that Torah is going to say that at that time human beings had an evaluation too. Problematic, right? How do you place a number on a person? And certainly, men and women here have a different evaluation. How do we place? <clears throat> how do we place a value on time or on person? How is it possible for us to have that? What does it mean? It means that someone would say, I want to give my value, right? So we have a way of evaluating a person's time. A person says, I want to give myself, the value of myself to this institution. It might have meant that they were giving themselves completely to the institution, like Samuel and others. But it means that there's a way to dedicate your value, the value of your time, of your person, to a sacred institution. So at this moment, in this moment, I'd like to, to bring it home for a second and talk about where Romamu is in our personal, in our institutional journey through the year. This moment is our second week of our membership drive. <clears throat> Many people here this morning might not know this, but maybe you belong to another synagogue in Germantown or in other places around the city or the country. Keeping Shabbat open so that anyone can come in, anyone from anywhere, costs Romamu and shuls like Romamu money. It's hard to imagine, right? Imagine for a moment your favorite yoga studio that you belong to. That it said to every person that came in, only members can come in. Why? Because they have to pay for the lights. They have to pay for the teachers. Romamu and shuls like Romamu meaning I think all synagogues, essentially leave their doors wide open because they hope that people who will walk in and benefit from what is happening on a Friday night or Shabbat morning. 
But many of you would never think, or many have not thought, that coming to Romamu or shuls like Romamu actually is in some way taking. Taking time and resources from the team, the staff, the rabbis, the custodians, the people who are here, who are giving hours. And there's a value to the sacred. There's a value to participating in community. So along comes the Torah at the end of the book of Leviticus and says, what makes the Mishkan, the centerpiece of the institutional world of Jewish life and most life, is not mandatory gifts, but those who are prompted voluntarily to give of their time, of their talent and their treasure. The book of Leviticus ends with people saying, me, I want to give the value of me. What's my value? I want to give it to you. That's a big deal. That's a powerful moment. It doesn't say, listen, let's front load the person who wants to give us his Ferrari, her cows. The person who steps forward and says, I want to give what my value is. The Torah says, let's start there. And isn't that always the place to start? The people who want to give of themselves, who show up, who recognize that when they're not there, something is missing, not just for them, but for us too. It's a very big moment. So I would like to call this morning anyone in this room this morning, and if you're online, you too. Anyone who is a part of this community in some way, shape, or form, or of another community in some other place, because guests come, and they realize that there's more of them to give to the institution, and that they might not have heard the call because it's not frequent that I think my experience is that people stand up every time and say, please come, we need you to come, we need you to come. It's very infrequent, right? But if there's something in you this morning that says, you know, I have more to give that I'm not giving, from myself to either Romamu or another community that you belong to, feel this morning that that's really what the Torah is inviting us to, is to recognize that power. And that I would love it if you were to stand up and as you're here standing at the bima, if you could speak that commitment. Speak it to yourself if you feel comfortable speaking it out loud. It's also cool. But to say I would like to give my time to something in this world that is needing my time, my value, my presence, because it matters. If that speaks to you this morning, I'll give you a moment here because it's like, okay, what's going on here? If it speaks to you, and the Torah's um, words might solidify it, concretize it for you in your life, then please come forward 